Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, that you are good and that you've given us your word. Um, we thank you that in it we hear of you and of your gospel and of your great rescue that you've accomplished for us through your son Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that now as we listen and as we hear and as we um, try and understand what is going on, we would rejoice in you, we would trust in you, um, we would have ears to hear and I would be able to speak clearly um, and without losing my voice too. Amen. Just a, a word of warning, my, my throat has been going and so far it's held up, so if you get half of this sermon and stop, that's why. It's not because I've run out of things to say, um, it's because my voice has gone, hopefully. But hopefully it won't do that. Um, can I, there's a photograph that's going to appear on the screen right now and I want you to tell me where it is. I don't know where this is. It's Rosary Topping, good. I won't give you points. If, you, if you're new to Middlesbrough or Seaside, at some point you'll have to climb Rosary Topping. It's like a law. And if you've been here for a few years, you'll have to get a photograph of it or a picture of it on your wall. That's also the rule. Um, but anyone know what's just out of shot there that's very exciting? Don't tell me what's out of shot on that thing there. You've hugged it. You know what it is. John, what's there? There's, there's, a little, there's, a, there's something up on the hill. There. It's my favorite, the children's favorite thing on the walk up Rosary Topping. The folly. There's a little kind of stone folly built there, and my kids love it because it's where you're allowed snacks. Because um, if you, you start the walk in the car park, you obviously start getting nagged for snacks really soon. Um, and we say, when we get to the folly, we'll have a break, and then you can have a snack, and you can have a pause, and you can catch your breath. You know, that's that's how. You know, that's. I think that's fair. They can have water before then, but you know, that's you've got to get up to that point too. Um, when you climb it yourself, that is the point you can take a little pause. Um, this is a bit like that. We've used this metaphor um, uh, in Romans of, of climbing a hill repeatedly. We've kind of talked about it like a sailing a mountaintop to get to the great and glorious heights. We've got to do some work climbing it first. Romans 4, in a sense, Paul going, right, let's just stop for a second. Let's make everyone's caught up with us. The party's all here with us. Let's have a little pause. Let's look where we've come from. And let me just go over this because I'm not going to go any further until you're all up to speed with me. Because what we've said so far is so important. I'm not going to go any more until we've caught up. Um, when I was at Vicar School, I had to do Hebrew, which is great, but really, really brutally hard. My teacher was lovely and delightful. And occasionally, he would just say, right, today, nothing new. No more new stuff today. No, no new verbs or grammar or vocab. We're just going to try and make sure we're all up to speed with what we've learned so far. Like everything we've done so far, we'll try and catch up and make sure we're all at the same pace. Paul is, at one sense, that's what's happening here in Romans 4. He is going to give us some new bits that are going on and some implications, but mostly it's him saying, what I've told you in Romans 1, sort of 17 to, to now, to the end of 3, is so monumental and fundamental, and, and so, like, this is such a clear articulation of the gospel, I want to make sure that everyone's on the same page with me, or same scroll with me, I guess. You know, you're all up to speed, and I give you some examples and illustrations, I'm going to pull some guys out of the history of the Old Testament, and I give you some other ideas, just to show you what I've said here, just so you get this really clearly in your head. So in one sense, I'm going to say the same thing like four or five times in different ways, like Paul is doing here, but you need to get it, because this is vitally important. And when this clicks, you're like, oh, this is, this is how it works, this is how we're saved, this is how God rescues us. So um, the first little picture that Paul gives, and, and the main one that runs through this chapter, is of this guy, Abraham. And he says that in, in verse chapter one, he said, sorry, chapter four, verse one. He says, what shall we say that Abraham, the forefather of us by the flesh of us Jews, discovered in this matter? He's saying, look, so far, the Bible has, has oh, sorry, Paul has been saying um, that the, the condition of humanity, the condition of us, that it, is that we are unrighteous, that this, we have sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God, we've, we've been unrighteous, and we need rescuing, which means we need righteousness. That like we haven't got righteousness, we need righteousness, which is... Um, we need justifying, or the, is the other expression he uses, like you need to be made righteousness. 
And this lack of righteousness brings about death and sin and God's anger against us. And we keep on doing these things. So Paul spends some time proving this is true. Saying, look, I'm going to demonstrate to you that you are unrighteous, that you do do wicked things. Even when you think you do good things, actually often you're just doing things that are evil. And, and more than that, he's trying to prove that you cannot save yourself. It's like he's kind of, um, someone's stuck down a well, I guess, and, he's, and they say, oh, I could try and climb that. He's like, well, you can't do that because he'd fall back down again. He's like, oh, I could build a tower. Like, well, the, the bricks would crumble. He's saying that there are ways you might think you can save yourself, but often it just makes yourself worse and gets yourself more trapped in there. One of those big ones that people think is, I can do really good stuff, like obey God's rules or be a lovely person, and that'll be enough to save me and give me this righteousness. And Paul's been saying, that's not going to work. You can't do enough righteousness to make up for your lack of unrighteousness. In fact, doing it in, in one sense makes it worse. And then he gets to um, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but now apart from the law, apart from doing all these good deeds, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the Old, the Old Testament testifies. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For everyone sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace. He's saying that God has come... And through Jesus, given us this justification, given us righteousness, just by trusting in Jesus. That's how you get saved, just by faith in Jesus. Nothing else. That's what they say. There's no other way to save. You just trust in Jesus. If that's true, then that should have been true forever in the Old Testament too. Like if the only way to be saved is trusting in Jesus, then the guys in the Old Testament can only be saved by trusting in Jesus. So like Esther and Daniel and Noah and Moses and all the rest of them are only saved by looking through that salvation that comes through Jesus. So he says there, what, what about Abraham? Let's consider Abraham, this great character in the Old Testament, this hero of the faith, this guy we all look up to and admire. Um, and he says in verse 2, if Abraham was justified by doing good things, by works, then he could have boasted. He said, look at me, I've done great things. I deserve to be saved. But what does the scripture say instead? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him, it was given to him, it was gifted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was given to him as righteousness. He believed, and God made him righteous. He gave him what he needed. Um, the story of, the Ab- of Abraham is, is, is this. Um, if you want to, turn back to Genesis 12. Um, it's, if someone finds it, yell out a page number. Oh, it's page 12. That's good, isn't it? Convenient. There we go. And it's mostly on page 13. Um, uh, so Abraham is briefly mentioned in Genesis 11 in the family tree, but it, it starts within Genesis chapter 12. The Lord speaks to Abraham. So God himself speaks to Abraham and says, Go from your country, your own people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who... And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham goes, as the Lord has told him. And so Abraham heads from his land he's living, uh, in a place called Ur, and he heads out, and he goes, and the Lord meets him, and he worships the Lord, and, um, yeah, and, and he starts to follow God. And then later on, a few chapters over on page 15, chapter 15, um, uh, it says this, the word of the Lord, so that's, that's God in like, you know, that's, anyway, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision and says, don't be afraid, Abraham, I'm your shield and your very great reward. If you're following this, you go, why is it Abraham, not Abraham? He changes his name, but don't worry. Um, And Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I'm childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is this this guy, my servants. And Abraham says, you've given me no children, so a servant's going to inherit all my stuff. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir, 
but a son coming through your own body will be your heir. And he says, look outside and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he says, so shall your offspring be. Just at the start of half term, we took our kids up to the moors because they had a stargazing night. It was really cloudy. We didn't see a single star. We saw Jupiter briefly, not a star, and the moon, no stars. But my understanding is, if you go in the moors on a clear night, you get the view of all these stars. Even in, in Borough itself, on a clear night, you can see probably more than you can count real, realistically. You know, it would take you too long. The minute you go in the dark countryside, you see loads more. Abraham lives before, you know, torches and, and electricity and lights. When he sees the stars in the sky, he's seeing, like, you know, kind of properly space vision of everything. And God says, no, I will make your people more than those people. And Abraham, it says this, so, so, um, so he says this, uh, and, and then it says in verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, he believed this promise, believed God's word, and he credited to him his righteousness. So all Abraham's done there is he hasn't done anything. Abraham hasn't had to earn it. He hasn't like go, I've done these great things to you, God. I've sacrificed this stuff. I've like, you know, given you all my money. I've like been a really good person. It says Abraham just believed him and God said, yeah, you're righteous now. I've made you righteous because you have believed and trusted me. That's what belief looked like for Abraham. Um, jump back to Romans 4. This is important because in, um, later on in Abraham's life, he is going to get circumcised, um, which is a sign and a symbol of, of his obedience to God and his trusting in God. But Abraham was justified before he did this. It wasn't like Abraham got circumcised and they went, great, you've been circumcised, now I'll rescue you. It says, no, no, no. Um, it says in verse 10, under what circumstances was Abraham credited righteousness? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. He was, he was made righteous by God and then he was circumcised. In the same way, in verse 13, he says, look, it wasn't through the obeying the law that Abraham is often received the promise, because the law hadn't even been written yet, hadn't come into the world, but the, through the righteousness that comes by faith. So Abraham couldn't have obeyed the law to get saved because he didn't got the law. It wasn't going to be written for another 500 or so years. It wasn't by being a good person he was saved. It was by trusting in God. Sometimes I think we can imagine Abraham as this guy living in a foreign city, and he's lovely and good, and God rescues him. But the Bible doesn't say that. It says God rescues him, and then he becomes a good person after God saves him. Now, if you want to know why God rescues Abraham out of that city and not all the other sinful people there, then Romans 9, 10, 11, which we'll get to at some point, kind of talks about that a bit. Um, but just for now, God rescues him while he's a sinner and then brings him into this land and, and, and saves him. And all Abraham has to do is trust in him. He's rescued by God's grace. It's a gift given to him. Okay, that's one image he uses. Here's another one. Um, Think about your job if you have one, or a previous job if you haven't had one, um, if you haven't got one now, rather. Um, at the end of a month, you'll probably get a wage slip, right? A little piece of paper, and on it it will say, um, like, your hours you've done, your, you know, how much you're paid, and it'll say, like, how much tax you've paid, and your national insurance, and your pension contributions, and other stuff like that, too. And you'll try and go, is that really how much tax I have to pay? But it probably is. That's what you get at the end of every month, okay? And that is what you have earned. You work at that, and therefore you get paid at the end of it. If at the end of the month your employer said, oh, no wage slips this week, this month, you'd be like, no, that's not, I need to get paid, that's how it works, right? I, I work for you, and you have a legal obligation to pay me. And if your employer withholds wages, you can sue them, and you probably will win, and you'll get the money back. And if your employer pays too little, you, they have to pay the minimum wage, that's how it works. Also, if you got to the end of your month, the month, and the employer said, oh, here's a gift for you, and gave you the money, you'd be like, well, it's not, it's not a gift, is it? I've worked hard at this. Uh, I did my job. I turned up on time. I worked. You have to pay me this. It's not a free gift. It's, it's um, a wage. Um, look at Romans 4, um, verse 4, and this will come up in a minute. Oh, no, thanks. 
It says, to anyone who works, their wages, this is Romans chapter 4, verse 4, to anyone who works, their wages are not credited them as a gift, but as an obligation. You have to pay someone if, you work, if, if they work for you. However, to anyone who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is given to them as righteousness, credited to them. And, and the idea is you have these two views of how you can be made righteous, how you can be justified, either by your works or by grace through faith. And when it's by work, it's, it's you've earned it. You've worked really hard, you've been a good person, you've done everything you're told to do, and therefore you'll earn it like a pace. That we can have the other bits up if you want. Um, and you can boast about that. I've worked really hard, I got paid. It's, it's, you've done it. And, and you get what you deserve, hopefully. Right? You've worked really hard, and you get paid your wages, and that's, you know, that's legally yours, you deserve to earn that. And also, it's never enough. I don't mean your, your pay... I haven't seen your pay slips. Maybe it is enough for you. I don't know. Um, what I mean is that you can't do enough to earn God's favor this way. That you can't somehow work your way back into his... Um, like you, you're unrighteous, and you have to... You're unrighteous, and you think, oh, I'll do lots of good things, and that'll make up for my unrighteousness. But you're meant to do the good things anyway. That's like the bare minimum. You, there's, nothing, there's no way you can top up and get back to normal. In fact, just working at that... Is just is is, is um, almost making it worse, because what you're saying is, don't worry, God, I don't need you. I'll do it myself. You're not, and, and that in itself is a try to save yourself becomes this another way we sin and disobey God. The other way, though, is we trust in God as a as a gift. He gives it to us freely. He just rescues you. You trust in Him, and He does it. He pays for your sins and deals with them. It is entirely a gift given to you. You have done nothing to earn this. You haven't done it. It's just a gift. And it is entirely received, therefore, with thankfulness. You can't boast to go, look, God saved me because I'm great. No, he saved you because he loves you and Jesus died for you. And we just have trusted in him. That's all that's happened. You get what you don't deserve, and it is more than enough. It's like an abundance for you. It's overwhelmingly so. It rescues you and brings you to him and saves you. That's how it works. It's not like a page slip. It's like a gift given. Um, some other further examples in this passage. I'll, I'll try and be quick. Um, if you look down at, at verse 6, he then picks on um, David from the Old Testament. So King David kills Goliath, um, you know, the shepherd of God's people and, and king of them. And David writes lots of psalms. And in one of the psalms, he says, David's saying the same thing when he speaks of blessedness of those to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. This is chapter 4, verse 7, which is quoting from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sin the Lord will never count against them. He's not saying, blessed are people who do the right things and so God rescues them, or contribute a bit to God, to what they need to do, and God does the rest of them. He's saying, blessed are those whose sin the law doesn't count against them. Sinners who go, I've done wrong, I've done wickedness, and yet God forgives me. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. When the Bible thinks about who is blessed, it says the blessed person is the one who God has rescued. Not the one who's done great and righteousness. You see this in the New Testament when Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about those who are blessed and says, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The ones who acknowledge that they can't do it themselves and they need help, those and the ones who cry out for forgiveness, those are the ones who are forgiven. Those are the ones who, who are blessed because God has, um, they've trusted in God, they've had faith in Him, and He's saved, and He saved them. Um, let me give you an example from history. Does anyone know what day it is today, other than the 31st of October? I don't know. It's Halloween, anything else. 
It is the 504th anniversary of, of this guy, Martin Luther, nailing his thesis to a church. It's, it's Reformation Day, if you want to celebrate such things. Um, this is a guy called Martin Luther. Martin Luther, uh, 504 years ago, um, was really angry. He's, he's quite an angry guy. But he's really angry about um, a thing called indulgences. Right? And so at that time, there was a guy called, I can't pronounce his name, Tzetskill. I think that's right. Someone can probably correct me later on. Uh, that's less flattering, but they didn't like him in history, so um, that's him up there. He was going around collecting money to build some churches, not a terrible thing, but, but he claimed that by, if you gave him money, it would get your family relations out of this kind of purgatory limbo state. It doesn't exist, but that's what they believed. A purgatory limbo state um, that they'd, like, they died, but they maybe hadn't done enough to get into heaven. They weren't a good person. They'd probably done some sins. And they died. So, so give him some money, and he will, um, and, and that money, not through him, but that money will then like, buy their way out of heaven. Like, get out of jail free card kind of thing. You know, you've paid enough to do this. Now, obviously, people are annoyed with this. Some people, because they think, hang on a second, I've been a good person, and they're just like bribing their way out? That's not fair. But Luther's not annoyed for that reason. Luther's annoyed because he looks in the Bible and says, this doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. The Bible says that we're saved freely as a gift. It's a gift given to you. And there's no way you can pay extra on top. If it's a gift, what are you doing paying for it? And what are you doing telling people they need to pay for it? So his thesis, he's nailed to the, this church door, these um, 95 bullet points. So it's like a church notice sheet. If you think our notices are long, there's 95 there we go. So it's fine. Um, so the ones he nails to the door are saying, stop buying these indulgences. It's a gift given to you. Um, he, he, his theology hasn't fully developed at this point. But the point he's making is this. You can't do anything like extra than what Jesus has done. He's already paid the price of your sin. He's given you his righteousness. You trust in, in that through faith, and, that, and you're saved. That's done. There's nothing you add to that extra. You don't need to top that up with your own money. You don't need to kind of think, oh, well, maybe I therefore... You don't need to be a good person afterwards. I'll come to this in a second. But you don't afterwards need to be a good person. You're saved by faith, trusting in Jesus. Okay? That's, that's what happens here. Um, and, and, and I say this, and I'll, I'll qualify in a second, you don't need to be a good person afterwards. I used to work with Muslim teenagers, and they could not get this, because in their head, you had to be really good, and even when you were really good, you'd probably go to hell for a bit, and then you might get into their heaven. Now, I, I don't know if their Muslim theology was accurate. That's just what these kids believed. They believed loads of wacky stuff, too, so they might be completely wrong about Islam. So, but just what these kids believed was, if I'd done some good stuff later on, then I'd hopefully get out of hell sooner. And the idea that I could be forgiven and then do what I wanted was like baffling. They're like, well, that doesn't make sense. But the Bible says that. You trust in Jesus, you're saved, and you're saved, you're, you're made righteous, you're free, you're forgiven, you don't have to add anything. Um, let's just consider Zacchaeus quickly, right? Um, if you want to, turn to Luke 19. Again, if you find a page number, you can yell out and you can um, get points with, I don't know, something. Nine nine four. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, the children are doing this in their groups next door. Um, Jesus goes into Jericho, and there's a man there, Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector and wealthy, and he wants to see Jesus, but he was short, so he climbs up a tree. Jesus calls out to him. Jesus speaks to him and says, "Come down. I'm coming to your house." And he comes down at once, and 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 he welcomes him. And then everyone goes, "He's a sinner." Um, and that so so. Jesus calls Zacchaeus. That's what rescues him. I mean, the Holy Spirit works in Zacchaeus' heart, so he climbs to see Jesus, and then Jesus calls out to him, and, that's, and brings him down and welcomes him and says, come to me. 
He doesn't say, go away. And Zacchaeus comes to him. That's an act of faith. Jesus speaks to him and he comes to him. But then after that, Zacchaeus says, Lord, look. Um, look, Lord, rather. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay him back four times. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Um, you need to get the order right here. Jesus doesn't say, well, okay. Jesus isn't kind of going, you're not saved until you give all this stuff. Once you've given away your everything back and paid your back, then I'll save you. What he's saying is, I've saved you and rescued you because I've called you and you've trusted in me. Your response to that is to rejoice in this thing and go, actually, I'm a sinner, I'll give back what I need to do. That's like a consequence of what he's, um, of, of Jesus saving him. And Jesus declares it, he says that your giving back is like an evidence of this. Your giving back is an evidence that you've trusted in Jesus and are saved. Um, is, but it's not the thing that saves you. Zacchaeus giving away his possessions is not the thing that saves him. It's Jesus calling him and rescuing him, and him having faith in that that rescues him. Um, let me give you uh, another example um, from history of this. Um, and, and first, a question as well. Does anyone know where that is? This was taken about two days ago. Did someone say London Bridge? I'm sorry, I have to word it. It's Tower Bridge. This is Tower Bridge over there. Um, anyone know why it's called Tower Bridge? Because it's by the Tower of London. Okay, that's not because it has towers on the side. Um, we were seeing friends, we happened to meet them by Tower Bridge, so we thought we'd do the tourist photograph. Um, but um, we, we walked across Tower Bridge, you know, and you walk and talk and drink coffee, and we came on the other side to the Tower of London, which I don't have a photograph for, but will be better. And that Tower of London, you can walk over, um, like, uh, the footpath goes over a bit of river that comes in to a place called Traitor's Gate. So in the big walls of the Tower of London, there's a gate and it's called Traitor's Gate, and there's a portcullis down there. And it's called Traitor's Gate because you used to um, bring traitors in by boat because then they couldn't be like kidnapped or rescued or whatever, and then you bring them and execute them. And then later on, when things were a bit more modern, they um, brought them out of Traitor's Gate when they were in prison to Westminster to try them and then execute them. Um, but that's, that's what it was called. So Thomas, my son, who's there, asked about this. goes, oh, did they only kill bad people? And I go, well, hmm. Sorry about that. Uh, and the one example I gave was um, this lady called Lady Jane Grey, who appears there. So, um, British history, you can ignore this if you don't want to, but um, guy called Henry VIII, he dies and Edward becomes king. Edward dies, and he wants his, I think, first cousin, um, or second cousin maybe, Lady Jane, to become queen. Um, so she is announced as queen when Edward dies, and then her, her um, cousin, Mary, like, forms a coup. And Mary, instead, become Mary, Queen of Scots, becomes queen. And she is then arrested and put into um, the Tower of London. And at first, they're not going to kill her, but they go, no, actually, she's a threat to the government. We're going to kill her as a traitor, because she said she's queen, and she's not. Um, now she, this is, she's 17 at this time, and she has this amazing faith. I wasn't convinced that this was historically accurate, but the more I looked into it, the more I found that this seems to be like an almost verbatim transcript of her conversation. Um, but So she's in, in prison, in jail, and um, they send a chaplain to her, not because they want her to say sorry and they'll forgive her. They're going to kill her, whatever happens. But what they want to happen is they want her to acknowledge that she has um, made a theological error. And, she's, and they want her to say, I was a heretic. Please forgive me. I'm going to pay some indulgences, say penance, and then I might get to heaven. So they send this chaplain to see her. And the chaplain asks her, okay, well, what's required to be a Christian? And she says they should just believe in the God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. And the chaplain says... What, is there nothing else to be required or looked for in a Christian but to believe in him? And then Jane says, okay, you should love him, God, with all your heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and our neighbor as ourselves. And so the chaplain says, oh, see, it's not just faith. You have to do stuff as well. You have to love your neighbor. 
But she goes on to explain that Christian faith naturally leads to the love of your neighbor. You trust in Jesus, he rescues you, and so you love God and your neighbor. And the chapman goes, but you're still saying it's necessary to do good works to be saved. And she responds, and this is almost verbatim. I've modernized it very slightly. She says, I deny that, and I affirm that faith only saves. But it's right and good for a Christian as a mark that they follow the Jesus Christ to do good works. Yet may we not say that they bring us to our salvation. For when we've done everything, yet we are only unprofitable servants. And faith only in Christ's blood saves us. You see what she's saying? She's saying, she's saying nothing, Paul is, nothing more than what Paul is saying. It's only faith that saves. Trust in Jesus and get saved. Because of that, you'll do good works. But that's what's saving her. She is facing death at this point. She's, I think she writes this three or four days from her death. And she says, but it's just Jesus that saves me, nothing else. Um, you see this again briefly um, with Abraham at the end of, the, of Romans 4 again. You, uh, Abraham's promised this child, and they get to really old age, um, and, and they still haven't had a child yet. And verse 18 it says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall offspring be. Um, without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and his wife Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do whatever he promised. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. This is an example of faith. He just trusts God's promises. He's like, his, his, his wife is past the menopause, and she couldn't have kids before then. He's as good as dead. And yet, just trusting God's promises, and go, he will, he will do what he does. We trust in him. We're faithful to him. And God counts as righteousness. Christian belief is just trusting in Jesus Christ. It's holding on to him. We'll talk more about good works when we get further on to Romans, but, but just get that. That's all that Paul is trying to say. Get on board with this. Christian faith is just trusting in Jesus. You don't bring anything to the table. Christ saves you from his own goodness and out of his own love. It's his death that pays for your sins. That's what he can say in verses 23 onwards. The words it was given to him, credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for justification. If you have believed in Jesus, you are rescued and justified. That's it. If you have trust in him, you are saved. It is done and dealt with. You are justified in Christ. You believe upon him and you are saved. It's, it's so simple, yet we struggle to get it. We want to bring something and go, oh God, yeah, I've done all this great stuff. He's like, that's not it. Trust in Jesus and be saved. Just lean on him. Listen to him. Trust in his blood. That's what you need to do. It's not about your goodness and your wonderfulness. When we feel like, oh, God must not like me. It's like, no, no. You're, if you trust in Jesus, you are saved. Look to him and his promises. You are rescued. You're saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news message. Um, quickly, because I've, I've probably over short time, but let me give you one application for this. Um, at some point, you will all face your death. Some of you will actually be aware of that already. I know there are, there are people who might be listening at home or watching who go, actually, I've had conversations with doctors where they say, yeah, you've got X amount of months. Yeah, you've got a time limit on your life. Or, or, or there'll be people who know that facing that for other people, and they'll be aware of that. Or just people who are, who are aware that they have conditions that are chronic. Or all of us, like, we all know at some point that will happen to us. We will have to go, I am facing death right now, and I, I, I worry, what will happen next? And often the worry is, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? Again, every other religion, I think, well, as far as I'm aware, um, you know, you have to do something. If you've done these things, then you'll be all right. So if you've done enough good deeds, you'll be reincarnated properly. If you've lived a good life, you'll get into heaven. If you've, if you've kept these rules, you'll do that. And that becomes about us. And you're never sure. 
There's no confidence, because you've probably done something wrong, or you maybe made a slip-up or a mistake, or you haven't been quite good enough. But yet we, go, we look to Christ, we actually have confidence in him. Here's um, what um, Lady Jane Grey again, uh, she's prayed right before she died. She's literally standing there with the block in front of her. She's forgiven the executioner already. Um, and she says, I ask you all, good Christian people, to bear witness that I die a true Christian woman, and that I look to be saved by no other means but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. That's what she says. She says, I can die at 17 confidently because I know that Christ will pay for me. She's not saying, look at me, I'm really good. She, she acknowledges his sin, but she says, I just trust in the blood of Jesus to save me. That's all it is. It's looking to him and trusting in him. At some point, all of us will face that, of, of that final moment, and go, actually, what, what happens next? And at that point, I look to Christ. If you haven't done that, just... He offers it to you now. Trust in him, believe in him, and you will be saved. And for all of us, it is that holding on to him. We stop trying to bring our stuff to God. Say, look at the good things. Here's that good thing. It's, I'm glad you're doing good works, but that's not why I've rescued you and saved you. I've, I've saved you when you're a sinner. I love you and care for you. And, and we have confidence, therefore, before God, and when we go and stand before God on the final day, that we, we, we claim Christ and his blood for us. Amen.